Uh, I appreciate Chris's rousing introduction of me earlier. Uh, it is hard to believe that we have been here for almost a decade, um, and we truly do feel like this is a special place for our family, and uh, being here at East Brainerd has been just a blessing to us and the community and friends and uh, extended family that we feel like we have here has been really important to us. So we're thankful to be here and have uh, not been shown the door yet. So, you know, I haven't gotten fired yet, so let's go. Um, but we've been in the midst of uh, a series talking about big goals, big, hairy, audacious goals. And when Chris asked me to make a graphic for this, I thought, how in the world do I represent big, hairy, audacious goals? And a, uh, a hairball from a cat was not what I wanted. Uh, so we went with a, a monster, a monster to represent uh, a little hairy creature that, you know, uh, chases us. And hopefully we'll get stuck in our brain and make us think about the goals that we've been talking about. Because in this series, we've been focused on a dedication as a church to the next generation. Uh, of believers, the next generation of believers, a reminder that we have a calling and a purpose to pass along our faith to those that are younger than us and to seek ways to find, seek and find ways to engage them in their faith and add them into our community, into our spiritual community. But goals are tricky though, right? Goals are a very tricky thing. Uh, some are possible. Some goals are very possible. Last year, uh, me and Tim Edmonds made it a goal to run a half marathon together, and we actually ran two. It was awesome. Um, now, do I have the goal to do that again? Somebody actually asked me that this morning. I don't know yet. They're early, and they're hard, and uh, I get tired. Um, but other goals are much harder. You know, when I was a little kid, my goal was to be a professional athlete. So every day, my brother and I would be out in our neighborhood. We'd round up all the other kids in the neighborhood, and we'd play sports. During football season, we'd play football. During basketball season, we'd play, uh, we'd play basketball out on the neighborhood goal. During baseball season, we would be found down at the field in near our neighborhood uh, on those long summer days, pitching the ball and swinging our bats. And as a kid, what do you do when you want to be a professional athlete growing up? You pretend to be professional athletes. So what we would do every day, we'd be out there calling, because this is what you had to do. You had to call. I call so-and-so, and I'd be out there calling. I got Bo Jackson. I'm Bo Jackson. So I would be Bo Jackson, and I would get the football and pretend to be Bo Jackson, because he was my favorite athlete growing up. When we play bas baseball, we would be out there, and we were all Braves fans, and despite what happened this week with the Phillies, um, we won't talk about that, but we were all Braves fans. So we'd be out there. I called Greg Maddox, or I called Dave Justice. Or I call uh, the crime dog, Fred McGriff. And we pretend to be these baseball players. During basketball season, we would call, I would call Larry Bird. He was my favorite basketball player growing up. Uh, I would call Larry Bird. And, of course, everybody else would call, and they'd be like who? Mike, right? They wanted to be like Mike. We modeled our games after the best. We pretended to be these athletes. I was not left-handed, but if I called a left-handed batter, I tried to bat left-handed. Um, we, would, we would model our, our pitching. We would pretend to be like the pitchers. We would model, when we were Michael Jordan, you've got to stick your tongue out or else you're not Michael Jordan, right? We modeled and did everything after these world-class superstars so that one day we could attain the goal of being a pro athlete. The only problem with that goal is I didn't look like these guys, right? Little Sean did not look like Bo Jackson, Right? 
These two people are very different. I do not look like that. One of these two people would run over linebackers uh, and, you know, eat their breakfast for, for, you know, on the field. Not me. This is little Sean. I was probably in fourth or fifth grade at this point. Um, you know, I got my Braves hat on. Uh, this was actually taken at summer camp growing up, um, this picture of me. But we were not the same people. There was no confusion about who was going to be a pro athlete and who was not. Because that's the tricky thing about goals, right? Some goals, they are possible. Some are just unattainable. If my goal today was to start a business to sell chickens to a vegan restaurant, is that possible? No. That's not a good goal. So that goal is not attainable. Goals, especially big ones, need to have some sort of attainability. They need to be within some sort of reach. Or else what happens? We fail. We fail and we give up. And we feel like failures. So in this series, I hope that what you've heard and what you've heard Chris talk about, that you realize that, that we're not talking about some pie-in-the-sky, shoot-for-the-stars dream. These are things that we can do if we want to. If we want to. To reach the next generation of people for the kingdom is not something that is so far out there that we might as well give up before we start. No, I think that it is something that is possible Something that if we take the chance to re-examine our practices and our ways to see if they meet the needs of our young people in our community. Now, please don't um, misunderstand. This is not about ignoring the purposes of Jesus, not about ignoring the ways of Jesus, but about re-examining our practices to see if they are practical to a generation that is unlike any that we've ever seen before. So this morning, I want to encourage us. Uh, I want to encourage us to uh, set a goal before us as a church family, one that I think is possible, one that I think is within reach, and one that we can start today. And that goal is to grow a bigger family. Grow a bigger family. Now, if you're thinking, do I need to take my kids out of this room because this is a, a lesson about being fruitful and multiplying? It is not. That's not what we're going to talk about today. Um, we're going to talk about rethinking what it means to think when we think about our families. At the beginning of this year, like Chris said, my role was kind of redefined as family minister. So I've spent the last 10 months or so really thinking about what do our families need? How can our children's ministry and our youth ministry meet the needs of our church family here? Benefiting those that are at their place where they have children and trying to figure out how to do it because, as we all know, no one gets a handbook on how to raise a family. You figure it out as you go, and you hope that people will surround you and help you go through that process. Where are our families at? What do they need? And honestly, it has created more questions than answers at times. Thinking about what do we do here at East Brainerd to rethink what we're doing, offering, and expecting of our church to be a place that helps move all of us and our families into a loving relationship with Jesus Christ. I thought, well, let's, uh, as I was thinking about today, let's look at the scriptures. What are the families in the Bible doing that could help us maybe model our church after, right? That's a good place to start. Let's look at the Bible. What is the, the, the families that are in scripture doing that will help us be a better family church? Well, listen, it, it wasn't pretty. It wasn't pretty. I started at Adam and Eve, right? It's a 
couple that fails to trust each other, a couple that fails to trust God. God. Um, their kids, one of them kills the other. It doesn't go well. They're not the model family. You look at Noah, it's a man who seems to have some uh, family issues, some issues with wine after they get off the boat. Some sort of inappropriate behaviors amongst uh, one of his sons. The cursing of a grandchild. Not necessarily the model family. Think about Abraham. He gets a slave pregnant. He sends her and her son away. And then he attempts to kill his own son as a sacrifice before God's intervention. There has to be some sort of lasting trauma between a father and a son who experienced that, right? Then think about just the, the, the drama that he has with his nephew Lot. Then you get to Isaac. He has two sons who lie and bicker constantly. They fight for most of their lives, along with a mom who clearly favors one child over the other. We're not supposed to have favorites, right? If you have favorites as a kid, you don't tell anybody, right? Then we get to Jacob. He seems to have forgotten the God of his father until he has a dream. Maybe he and Isaac weren't having you know, family devotionals at night. Maybe if Isaac would have had more family devotionals at night with Jacob, he wouldn't have forgotten the God of his father. Anyway, Jacob has a bunch of children with multiple wives and servants who all fight amongst themselves for his affection. Then of all those kids, they sell one of their brothers into slavery out of jealousy. Listen, me and my brother fought. We argued uh, a lot. Um, but I never once worried that he was going to take me down to the market and sell me. Right? Like, he was probably going to hit me, and I'd have bruises, and then he would threaten me for more bruises if I told mom and dad how I got those bruises. But he wasn't going to drag me down to the market and sell me into slavery. So that's a messed up family. Moses, we don't really know much about his kids, uh, what goes on with him and his kids. But I can imagine that spending a lot of time up on the mountain and leading the Hebrew people, he didn't have a lot of time to play catch with his boys. Fast forward to the kings. Saul has his own family drama. There's stuff going on. His own son is best friends with one of his greatest enemies. Then David, multiple wives, one through a forced sexual encounter. Doop, boop, boop, hello. One through an encounter that leads to a child being killed and dying. His kids fight for the throne. Solomon, despite his wisdom, having too many women in his life with children all over the place. King after king, failed family men and failed men of God to lead the people of God. I say all that to say, when we think of what family looks like, and how they acted in the story of God, it's not pretty. There isn't really a great example of what we think of when we think of the ideal family in the scriptures. And part of that is because the way families looked in the ancient world looks different than what we think of when we think of family in our modern West. Families were designed in the ancient world not around love and commitment, but around uh, kinship bonds based on an honor and shame system. Our marriages and our families now, are we try to base them on marriage and commitment. But a world ago, ancient, in the ancient world, it was created, built on something different. Families were extended households, entities, normally comprised of a head male, wife, children, dependents like a mother-in-law or uh, ailing parents, freedmen and slaves. N.T. writes this, uh, N.T. Wright writes this, and he explains that the household male, the paterfamilias, was the ultimate source of power and identity for the household. 
and largely determine the social and economic and religious activities for the family. So the family did as the father did. The family went as the father went and believed and thought as the father did. Much different than the way that we base our families around today as we try to promote the dreams and ideas of our children. It didn't matter what your kid wanted to be growing up in the ancient world. They were going to do something and be something that benefited the father. It's much different. N.T. Wright's going to go on to say this in his book, The New Testament and Its World. He says, in the first century, there developed in the Greco-Roman world, and that would be the world of Jesus, this particular ethic code on how to run a household, promoting order, honesty, uh, uh, honor, piety, and preparation for life in commerce, agricultural, civil leadership, military achievements, and nurturing a family. Even when children married into other families, their marriage functioned largely for the benefit of their own family in securing an inheritance, a dowry, or prestige. Families were a means of distributing wealth and property through inheritance and intangibles like honor, the family name, and the family cult. Family members were expected to show solidarity with one another and to pursue goals that promoted the well-being and reputation of the family as a whole. So if we just think for just a second, if you think about the parable, this in light of the parable and the story of the prodigal son, in light of this ancient world idea of what a family unit was, maybe you can see that Jesus' parable wasn't just about a son who wants to go party. It was a son who dishonors the entire family. He spits on his family's honor. And that's a big deal. His father wouldn't have just been hurt personally. He would have been shamed publicly by the actions of his son. So it makes this twist, the twist in the story, so much more impactful because the earliest hearers would have expected the dad to shame the son in order to get back into good standing, in order to restore him. But the father does no such thing. And what you begin to see is that Jesus is rethinking what family means. And so why do I bring this up? Why do I talk about the ancient worldview of what family was and how does that matter to us? Because if we are going to have any sort of goal, I think, of growing a bigger family, I think we too need to rethink family. Most of us, when we think of family, we think of our moms and dads. We think of our siblings. Some of us think of extended family, grandparents, grandchildren, aunts, uncles, cousins. But most of us base our lives around what we call the nuclear family or our immediate family, our moms, our dads, maybe, spouse, uh, maybe children who live under one roof, which is something that became more of the norm around the 13th century in Europe, but solidifies itself around uh, the earliest 20th century in American culture. This single-family household that becomes the norm, it becomes the goal, it becomes the American dream around the turn of the 20th century. A self-sufficient unit that raises its kids and then sends them out. Again, much different than the kinship bonds of the first century. But I think what we begin to see in the New Testament, I think what we begin to see, if we have the eyes to see it and the ears to hear it, we will see that the earliest believers, through the ways of Jesus, will begin to redefine what it means to be family. Redefine what it means to be part of a family as they re begin to redefine kinship bonds. 
So let's look at a few hard passages from Jesus as he begins to set this for us. If you would, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. We're going to look at a couple of verses in Matthew and one in Mark. Uh, so Matthew chapter 10, Matthew chapter 12, and then Mark 10 is what we'll kind of talk about for just a few moments today. Matthew says this in uh, chapter 10, starting in verse 34. He says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to turn, and he's paraphrasing Micah 7 here. He says, I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Then flip over to Matthew chapter 12. Let's look what he says there. Chapter 12, starting in verse 46, he says, while Je it says, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who is my brother? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here is my mother and here are my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now let's look at what he says in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 29. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions in this age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last first. These are challenging verses. And honestly, I don't know if I've ever heard a lot of sermons preached on hating my father and mother. These, these verses in this message, hating our children, isn't one of those uplifting, encouraging, hey, let's go out and share Jesus kind of messages. So we never really talk about these messages. It's more of a kind of like, wait, what? What, what are you saying to me, Jesus? What, what am I supposed to do? So let's talk about real quickly what Jesus is doing and then talk about how this connects to our goal today. I think it's important to know that Jesus often practice, practices the long-standing tradition of rabbinical and prophetic hyperbole. Prophets and rabbis would often say outrageous things for effect or to make a point of the severity of a situation. So in these instances, Jesus is using the, familiar, the uh, family unit to discuss the cost and sacrifice the first century believer may face to be a part of this new kingdom. Again, think back to that first century kinship household and those family bonds. These are based so strongly on the honor and shame system of their time and on the political and religious affiliation of the oldest male in the household. So for a young Jewish person... If a young Jewish person is going to come and say, Jesus is Lord, it is outright blasphemy and shame and dishonor to their family. Mom and dad would no longer be able to show their face at the market without shame. They would no longer be able to go to the synagogue without whispers behind their back. 
So to follow Jesus in the first century was cultural and social banishment, not just for the individual, but for the extended family. So yes, a sword would metaphorically divide a father and son, brother and brother, parent and child. And Jesus is asking, is it worth it to you? Is it worth it to join the kingdom that he brings and possibly, and most likely in their time and place, lose your closest community, your family? To follow Jesus was so much bigger and harder to do than we think it is as we live in our American church bubble. But here's what happens. And look back at the end of Matthew chapter 12. He says... Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he points at his followers, his disciples, and he says, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus begins to redefine kinship bonds and familial bonds. He begins to redefine what does it look like to be family? Not by blood, but by their commitment to Yahweh, through the lordship of Jesus Christ, and through their commitment to each other. Think about Paul's idea of family. Paul has some interesting things to say, family. Honestly, Paul could really care less if you got married and started a family or not. Think about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He talks about, listen, if you're married, great. That's good for you, great. Be honorable in your marriage, raise up children in the Lord, that's awesome. But honestly, it would be better if you don't get married. Because then you can focus on the kingdom of heaven. See, he doesn't care if you start a family and get married. But that seems to be our greatest goal in our culture. is to couple up, have some kids, and then send them off. Of course, Paul, in his connection to the Greco-Roman culture, he does have some advice for the order of a household, and we see that in Ephesians 5-6. through But the primary purpose of the Christian household was not to get good jobs, have 2.5 children, two cars in the garage, and a white picket fence. That was not the goal. In many ways, Paul spends some of Romans reminding the earliest followers that they are part of a bigger family than just the family they were born into. He understands many have lost their birth families due to the decision to follow Jesus, but they are now children of God through Jesus Christ. He'll say in Galatians 4, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are a child, God has made you also an heir. So growing a bigger family. Let's get back to that goal with all this in mind. What will it take for us to grow and be a bigger family? I believe it will take you looking around this room. It will take me looking around this room and you looking around this room and investing in each other. Seeing each other not just as people who go to church together. If you see one another as people who just go to church together, we are missing a big part of what it means to be the family of God. But we need to begin to see ourselves as brothers and sisters who share a deep kinship bond, not based on our familial connections, but, that, but based on that of Jesus Christ himself. Paul's also going to say this in Galatians. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Neither, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, 
nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seeds and heirs according to the promise. So my big, hairy, audacious family goal for our church is for us to begin to see each other as kinship partners. Truly see each other as brothers and sisters who care for the well-being of one another and for our faiths. And not just people who go to church together. So that as older Christians who are in this room, you would look at the next generations and you will decide to be their spiritual parents and spiritual grandparents. You would not just shake your fist at them and say, back in my day, we did it this way. But you would come alongside them and provide community. And that, for those of you who are younger in this, you will seek to discover the wisdom of those who are older in this room. Seek to discover the wisdom of those who have come before you and know more than you about certain things. And not just shake your fist and say, you don't know what you're talking about. You're old and out of touch but to be in deep community with one another. Community is what the earliest followers lost from their families by following Jesus. But it's what they gained and what they found in the new kinship bonds of following the ways of Jesus. I want us to raise each other's children in the faith and not just think it's our youth ministry's job or our children's ministry's job or my job or Chris's job or any of our staff's job. I want us to raise each other's children in the faith. Asking, asking each other, are we having spiritual conversations, not just with our own children, but with our church family's children? Having conversations that go beyond, hey, how was your baseball game? But into how is God working in your life and what are you seeing Him do? Because those are the conversations that our younger people need to be having with you as their church family. I think of the call in Deuteronomy 6 to share the ways of Yahweh's in community. He says, Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hand and bind them on your forehead. Write them on your door frames of your houses and on your gates. The writer there is encouraging us to not forget what God has done for us and to talk about it in community, not just in our households, but when we walk down the streets and as we walk amongst one another. These can't, these can't just be done in our nuclear families. Our young people need to see you and me and the oldest person in here invest in one another, invest in each other, invest in our lives because of what Jesus has done. So let me leave you with a little bit of how. How do we invest in each other? I would encourage you to invite families into your home. Invite people into your lives. You may be retired and your kids are grown and gone, but invite a mom and dad that has a little kid into your house. Invite moms and dads who have children who they've been at work all day and they just, they're exhausted to put dinner on the table. But you have the time to make a meal and invite them over and get to know them. Invite our college students into your life. Let them have a meal, a quiet place to study if they need it. Maybe let them do their laundry at your house. Invite our singles who feel the pressure of loneliness into your homes with your families 
and with you as empty nesters. Invite them to be a part of your life, to be a part of your families. Young people, look out for older singles. Look out for our older people who might be lonely. Invite them to a meal. Invite them to be a part of your life and the things that you do. Have spiritual grandmas and spiritual grandpas and spiritual aunts or uncles. Create kinship bonds that go beyond just going to church together. I think of uh, Chris and Amy Marcus and how uh, when we moved here, uh, they moved here at the same time, they immediately became spiritual grand... Well, I can't say grandparents. They would, Amy would get me. Uh, aunts and uncles. Uh, aunts and uncle and aunt, aunt Amy and Uncle Chris to our children. And they... Every Christmas, they have them over to the house so Sheena can I, and I can go do um, some Christmas shopping. And they, they do Christmas at their house with our kids. And they've done that since they were little. And it's one of the things that my kids look forward to every year because Chris and Amy brought us in. They had no reason to, but they're part of our family. And they see us more than just Sean and Sheena, they see us as part of their family and we see them the same way. I would encourage us to volunteer in our children's ministry more. There's no reason why a church of our size should ever have any issue filling spots for our children's ministry or our youth ministry. Invest in the lives of our young people. Find ways to be with our kids and with our youth and with our young singles and our college students. Get to know them. Spend time with them. Hang out with them. Invite them to things. Be a part of their lives. And young people do the same. Be a part of our senior fellowship group. They have an open invitation to the things that they do. Show up. Hang out. Listen to their stories. Listen to them talk about their children and their grandchildren. Listen to them talk about their jobs. Listen to them talk about the struggles that they had growing up. And when faith was hard for them, but they persevered and they moved past some of the things that you are facing now. Be encouraged by them. Because at, at the very least, I see, I see that Jesus sees it this way. That because of these new bonds through his blood we become a different kind of community than just people who share a worship space. We become a community that is invested in one another, not because it's convenient, not because it's easy, because, but because we're called to. So we can start today. We can start to grow a bigger family here at East Brainerd. And this isn't something about just church attendance. This is about depth of our relationships together. This is about depths of our relationships with one another as individual families and as a whole family unit to grow beyond just being church members together. This is about our families, our singles, our retirees, our empty nesters, our widows, our children, our college students, our young adults, all feeling like they are part of a kinship bond that goes beyond just coming to church together, but rather a community of believers taking care of one another in a way that moves us closer to Jesus. So it's my prayer today that we have this goal in mind, that we can start today, this, this goal that we can start today to invest in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ in order to grow a bigger family, in order to grow a family that 
takes care of each and every need that we have for one another. A family that when things are hard, you know exactly who to turn to and where to go. And you don't have to sit in the loneliness and the struggle and think that you're trying to do this by yourself. So it's my prayer that we invest in the lives of our brothers and sisters so that we can grow a bigger family here at East Brainerd. As we wrap up today, you may be in need of prayer. Maybe things are not easy for you and where you're at. Maybe you need the prayers of your church family. Maybe you need to come and be surrounded by your church family because life is hard and you're feeling that pressure, that stress. As we sing in just a second, we'll have, uh, I'll be up here and we can pray for you here and maybe you need to have a conversation that we share with the entire church family. Maybe not. Maybe that's not what you need, but you need some private time to, to talk to somebody. We'll have an elder or two in our elders prayer room out in our lobby and we would love for you to go there if that's what you need. Um, a little bit later today, we're going to have a couple of baptisms um, after classes. There'll be a few baptisms here because there were some students who were invested in by adults who care about them and go on trips to Mexico with them and take them to places like that. But maybe you need to commit your life to Christ and you want to join that family of Jesus today and you want to begin a conversation about baptism or maybe you're ready to be baptized today. We can do that as well. Whatever it may be, my prayer again is that we take seriously the call to grow our church family, not in numbers, but in depth. And that we see each other as more than just people we go to church with, but as people that we truly, deeply care about. Because that's what the younger generation needs, is people who truly, deeply care about them and where they're at in their life. Not just scolding them because... We used to do it this way, but now you do it that way. They need people to come alongside them, to be there for them. So as you would, if you would, let's stand and sing together as we continue our time.